good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. He never fails. He never fails. For some of us, it's been a tough week. I know some of us in our church were grieving the loss of a, a dear loved one, Tony Yunuzo, if you knew him. So we're praying with the Yunuzo family and the Mitchell family. Uh, but I don't know what you're going through. It may have been a great week, may have been a tough week, but God doesn't fail. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. If you want to grab your Bibles or follow along on the screen, 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 5 through, we'll go to 14, 5 through 14 this morning. Um, again, we want to welcome you if you're new around here. We're glad you could be with us today. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad you could be our guest. 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 5 down to verse 14. Hear the reading of God's word. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel... 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had offered the burnt offering... Uh, as soon as he offered the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering with me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Let's pray before we begin. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you today um, asking for your mercy in your word. Asking that your word would do what it always does. It always transforms. You say that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes that which you sent it to do. And so, God, we ask that your word today would accomplish your purposes in us in this uh, subtle yet sinister sin of hurry, the sin that has captured my heart and many others 
Lord, we ask for your grace and your transforming power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the iPhone 15 was released last week. I don't know if you all heard about that. If you're an Android lover, we pray for you. We love you. We're for you. We're not against you. Uh, but for Apple lovers, people are talking about it. They're trying to decide if this is you know, their next phone. And, and you know, the Internet's a buzz about the iPhone 15. But if you go back all the way to the iPhone 5, there was a man by the name of Robert Samuel who on the day of the release of the iPhone 5, this is 11 years ago, he didn't realize he was going to start a business on that day. He showed up in line waiting with hundreds of other people to get their first look at the iPhone 5, and someone in line offered him $325 for his spot in line. The only trick is he had to stay there for 19 hours to get it. So he stayed there for 19 hours, and sure enough, the man paid him $325 for his spot in line, and then he did it again, and he did it again, and he did it again. And he started a business in New York City where all he does is wait for people. He waits for donuts, he waits for Broadway tickets, he waits for the subway, he waits for whatever he can get his you know, opportunity for, but he, people will pay him to wait. In fact, people hate to wait so much, are you ready for this? The day that he made the most money was $14,000 in one day waiting for Apple products. $14,000. Let that sink in for a moment. Someone hates waiting that much, they would pay $14,000. $14,000. And this is what he said when they interviewed him a couple years ago about his business. Uh, this is what he said. He said, we all hate to wait, but now I have found a way to make money on people's hate for wait. We hate to wait. I mean, it's, the grocery line at Walmart, hate to wait. The grocery line at Publix, wherever you shop, or, or maybe the notorious DMV, right? You go to the DMV, you're going to be there for half the day at least. If you go to a place where you've got to wait in line, there's something in us that just despises waiting, right? And so much so that we see wait time as wasted time. If you're going to wait in line or you're going to wait for something to be released or you're going to wait for something, you want to fill your time with something else, right? And so immediately you pull out your device and you start scrolling through social media or you're reading the latest news article or... Maybe you're, you're playing a mindless game, whatever the latest game is on your phone, but you're trying to, to use that time you know, efficiently or something. You, you want to fill that time with something or, or someone. Do you remember back in the day when there was no smartphone? And, and you literally had this strange experience of boredom. Just boredom. Like I don't know, some, some of us may not remember it, but boredom is when you have absolutely nothing to do. Like nothing to do. You, you, just, you don't have any other option but to just sit there and stare at the wall and think about your life. Like you're just bored. You have nothing to do. It's a strange phenomenon these days to be bored. But on a serious note, it's one thing to wait in these silly situations. It's another thing to wait when it's suffering. Right, when you're going through something difficult and, and it's one thing to wait in line for the latest gadget on Black Friday, but it's another thing to wait for healing. 
It's one thing to wait for, you know, the, the next TV show to be released to the next season or whatever it is. You, you, it's, it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing to wait for healing in your marriage and for there to be reconciliation between the person that you took vows with and you're not sure if it's going to make it. Right? There's, there's these situations in life where it's not just a, 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 a you know, un unimportant waiting that, that you can just kind of push through it. This is something that, that is extremely valuable. It's in those moments that you realize the life of faith is a life of waiting. It is a life of waiting. And so now we come to this text. We're continuing the series through the book of 1 Samuel. And last week, we had looked at the establishment of Saul as the king. Right? If you look back a couple chapters, the people of Israel, they, they ask God, they demand from God that they would have a king like the nations. And so God gives into their demand. He says, okay, if you want a king like the nations, here you go. I'm going to choose one for you. I'm going to choose Saul to be your king. And so God chooses Saul. He establishes Saul. And as soon as Saul is put into his position as king, he now goes and defeats the Ammonites, which is Israel's enemy at the time. And so Saul, uh, he, he wins this immediate victory, and it seems like everything's going great, right? We ask God for a king, he gives us a king, and then he defeats the enemies we're afraid of. Everything's going great, until it wasn't. And then it starts to go south. You start to see cracks in his leadership, but even worse, you start to see cracks in Saul's soul. You start to see that Saul doesn't really want to live the life of faith. In fact, Saul is struggling with this idea of waiting. Saul is struggling with what it means to trust in the Lord. And because of that, there's some major consequences. Instead of living the life of faith, he wants to live a life of hurry. In fact, one of Saul's greatest enemies, just like us, is hurry. It's hurry. And so how do we learn to wait rather than live in hurry? That's what I want to look at today. I want, to, I want to look at that question. How do we learn to wait rather than live in hurry? Let's look at the, the first point here. We've got to look at the hound of hurry. The hound of hurry. Look at verse 5 as the story continues or, or begins. It says, uh, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth -Avim. Now, pause there for a moment. In earlier in the chapter, verses 1 through 4, which we didn't read, uh, you, you kind of get a sense of why this fight is happening. Basically, Saul went to the Philistines and picked a fight. He decided, you know what, I'm feeling good. I defeated the Ammonites. I'm the king. Let me go see if I can get a victory with the Philistines. And so he picks a fight with the Philistines, and he gets a quick victory. They, they win the battle, but there's a cost to his decision because now he's stirred up the hornet's nest, and the Philistines are exponentially more powerful than Israel. Israel is, is barely even organized at this point, and Saul picks a fight with this major power who has more money, more resources, greater weapons, and now the Philistines are organizing together themselves to attack Israel, and they're panicking. Because now the Philistines are coming up against them with, with all of these resources, all of this pressure, and they're starting to feel it. In fact, uh, there apparently was this uh, agreement, this, this conversation between Samuel the prophet and Saul the king before this happened. 
And apparently somewhere before this, Samuel and Saul came to an agreement that Saul is able to fight them because he's the king, but he's not allowed to go fight them until Samuel brings the word of the Lord to Saul. In other words, Samuel, who is the prophet, is going to bring God's word to the king and tell the king what to do. And until he gets the word of the Lord, he's not supposed to do anything. And so he tells Saul, wait for me seven days. I'll be there in seven days. Just wait. Look what happens in verse 8. It says, he waited seven days. That's Saul, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Here it is. The pressure is building, right? Or Saul is, is feeling like the, the walls are caving in on him. His people are leaving. The Philistines are coming. The time is running out. And he realizes it's been seven days. Samuel didn't show up. I guess I should just take it into my own hands because this seems like I have to do something. So hurry up, bring me the burnt offering, I'll offer it myself. Sure enough, they bring him the burnt offering, he offers it himself because he was in a hurry. Hurry had gripped his heart. Listen, I just want to sit there for a second. Hurry will chase you down. It will chase you down. Dallas Willard was a, uh, a writer, author, uh, who wrote tons of books on spiritual formation, some of the classics that people still read today. Uh, but one of his uh, conversations that he had was with a young pastor whom he was mentoring. And this young guy, he was uh, recruited by a church up in Chicago, huge church, and, and they hired him, moved him out to Chicago. And when he moved to Chicago, he was already burnt out. He was already tired. And, and yet he, he enters into this ministry exhausted and tired, and now he's even worse. And so he calls up Dallas Willard, who's his mentor, and he says, look, I don't know how to get my soul back, but I feel like I can't get out of the darkness. He said, can you help me? Can you help me with this situation? I don't know how to get my soul back. And Dallas Willard, on the other side of the phone, paused for a moment. There was a long silence. He was known for his silences. He would just pause. And then he broke the silence like this. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So the young pastor, he, he writes it down on the other side of the phone. He's writing down these insights. He's like, oh, that's great, that's great. What else? What else do I need to do to get my soul back? And he pauses again, long silence. He says, there is nothing else. That's what you need to do. This is what he said. He said, Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. And so you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry? Hurry is it? Right? At some point, you, you may hear that and you think, oh, that, that's profound, but it's also very confounding. That, that doesn't make any sense. Hurry? Hurry is the greatest enemy of my life? I mean, I thought there's other things that are more important. I thought there's things that, that are a greater threat to my life. Seriously, hurry is the greatest threat to my life. I would, I would say for many of us, yes. For many of us, absolutely. See, in Saul's day, Saul is feeling the pressure of the Philistines coming upon him, and he's feeling like, I've got to do something, I've got to do something. If I don't do something, no one else will. I can't wait on God. And so he's in a hurry. But I mean, think about what Saul would have been like today. 
In 2023, with all the technology and the modern world we live in, it's, it's exponentially worse for us to feel the pressure of hurry. I mean, think about it. Who, who today has enough time to wait on the Lord? Who has enough time to just wait on the Lord? I mean, we've got things going on. We've got to go to practice. We've got to go to meetings. We've got to serve in the church. We've got to go to this. We've got to go to that. We've got to make some money at our job. We've got to feed our kids. We've got to do laundry. We've got to clean the house. We got to, I mean, you could come up with a list of 50 things you could get done this week, and it wouldn't be enough. There's so much to do, so much pressure, and then every ounce of margin that we have, we then fill it with other things. How, how do we gain enough space when hurry is chasing us down? Or to put it in Dallas Willard's terms, how do we ruthlessly eliminate hurry? One of the most helpful ways is... Uh, is what Richard Foster called the spiritual discipline of slowing. The spiritual discipline of slowing. You might have heard of spiritual disciplines as prayer or Bible reading or, or fellowship with other believers, and those are in incredibly essential. But there's, there's an idea here, the spiritual discipline of slowing. And what does that mean? It, it means literally just intentionally putting yourself into a place where you have no choice but to wait. You have no choice but to wait. You're, you're putting yourself in the place where you're building those muscles of waiting and trusting because you're putting yourself there intentionally. John Mark Comer gives some practical examples of this spiritual discipline of slowing in his book that's titled after this conversation, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He gives five that I want to give you. First of all, if you want to write these down, here's the first one. Drive the speed limit. Drive the speed limit. I mean, that, that just sounds silly, but, but for real. He, he says in the book, he says, not, not 10 miles over just because you think you can get away with it. I'm not talking to anybody. But, but, and, but also not five miles below because that's just annoying. Right, right on the dot. Right on the dot. Try to drive the actual speed limit just as a way to slow yourself down. So you're not in a rush. Here's the second one. Get in the longest checkout line. Get in the longest checkout line. I mean, be honest. When you're in the checkout line or coming up to the checkout line, you're scanning for the shortest checkout line, and you're probably going to pick the wrong one anyway, so you might as well just find the longest one. Make it a little game. Make it a little longer for you because you're going to pick wrongly anyways. But pick the one that's going to make you slow down. Third one parent your phone. Parent your phone. What he means by that is this, and I need to start doing this. Put your phone to bed as if it was a three-year-old. Put it to bed at eight o'clock. Turn it off. Put it in its own little corner. Don't wake it up until the morning. Just, just relax without a phone for a few hours. Parent your phone. Fourth, set a time limit for social media. Most phones today will, will allow you to do that. They'll, they'll put a little thing on there where uh, you know, it'll automatically turn off after a certain amount of time. And I challenge you, make it less than 30 minutes. See if you can even do it. 30 minutes a day, that's your max. Some of you are laughing because you know it's impossible. 30 minutes a day on social media. Just put a cap. See if you can do it. 
but it'll slow you down because now not every waking moment or every you know, moment in between the other things happening, you're, you're grabbing your phone and looking at something on social media because now you can actually slow down. The last one is to Sabbath weekly. It's to take 24 hours and slow down. 24 hours where you wake up slower, you eat slower, you walk slower, just the whole day. Just make it a slow day. A slow day. Now, these are five things that if you try to do them are going to reveal things to you. They're, they're, they're going to bring things out of your heart, out of your life. They're, they're going to show things that maybe you didn't realize were there. And what I'm trying to say is it's going to show you really what's below the surface like most spiritual disciplines do. And this is what I want to look at next. What, what's actually going on in our heart as we're hurrying about in our life? So let's look second at the heart of hurry, the heart of hurry. Look at verse 10. The story goes on like this. It says, As soon as he, Saul, had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Now this is somewhat comical. As soon as he offers the offering... All of a sudden, Samuel walks onto the scene. Great timing, right? I mean, it, it kind of hints at something, though. If you read it closely, it really means that Samuel wasn't late, technically. Samuel, uh, let's not call him early, but he, he wasn't late, technically. He came on the seventh day, and Saul didn't want to wait the full day of the seventh day. He, he was hurrying past what the time limit was, didn't want to wait the full day, and so it's like that old gospel song. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time, right? Samuel embodies that song. He, he will be there right on time. Let's not give him credit for being early, but he was on time. And when Samuel shows up just on time, he shows up bearing more than just himself. He, he is the prophet of God who brings the word of God. And so when Samuel shows up, God shows up. God shows up. And so when Saul sees this, or, or sorry, when, when Samuel sees Saul and what he's done, he says to him, what have you done? Because both of them knew that this was not some seemingly small event. They know that this was a major thing for Saul to go forward and do this without him. And so Saul tries to give a reasonable example, right? He tries to explain himself. He says, look, I had no help. All my people are leaving me. I had, I had no control over this. The, the Philistines are, are coming with all their weapons, and, and I had no time. I'm out of time. What am I going to do in the last few moments? It's all your fault, Samuel. You should have been here. So do you hear it? I had no help. I had no time. I had no control. And so I did it. He, in fact, he says, I forced myself to do it because he knew it was wrong. But listen, he, he knows and we know that we can always come up with an explanation, right? I mean, honestly, there's, there's never a reason that, that is legitimate to not wait on the Lord, but there always feels like there's a reason. There, are, there always feels like this, this just makes sense. This makes sense that I would go and do this because here are all my reasons right here that this is what I should do. We're always able to rationalize our hurried actions. And so Samuel sees what's actually happening in Saul's heart in verse 13. Look at what it says. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Now, the language of foolishness isn't just another way to say that was dumb. 
or you should never do that again. Right? What, what Samuel was saying in, in the Old Testament, the word for fool, the, the idea of a fool had, had a much richer meaning. In fact, you go to Proverbs 14 and all throughout the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs 14 says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so what, what he's saying is, uh, what, what you have done, Saul, is live as if God is not real. You haven't said it with your words, but, but you've lived as a practical atheist. You, you've lived not denying God with your words, but with your actions. You've lived as if everything is really up to you. It's up to your time, up to your talent, up to your treasure. And so you didn't want to wait on me because it really is about you. You catch that? What he's saying is you have acted as a fool who believes there isn't a God. He was impatient with God. See, hurry, catch this, hurry is impatience with the pace of God. It's impatience with the pace of God. A few years ago, our family got a new appliance in the kitchen, and uh, it's called an Instapot. An Instapot. If you've never heard of an Instapot, you've probably heard of a Crock-Pot. It's the exact opposite. The exact opposite. A Crock-Pot is meant to be slow. You, you, know, you put your meat in there or, or chili or soup or whatever you're making in the Crock-Pot, and you just turn it on and you let it go for hours, maybe, maybe the whole day. It's just going to simmer in the Crock-Pot. It's going to bring out all those juices and flavors, and it's going to be amazing, right? It's, it's going to be a good meal. Well, the Instapot is the exact opposite. The Instapot boasts that it can take something frozen and bring it into you know, a fresh meal, hot meal, in just a few minutes. Now, how does it do that? How, how in the world can it do that and it still tastes good? Well, it has a lot of pressure and a lot of heat, but it's able to do it. I mean, I can testify it makes some good food fast, but the two work completely differently. Both make good food, but the Instapot and the Crock-Pot are not the same device. Listen to me. When it comes to our lives with God, often we have instapot expectations with a crockpot God. We have this expectation with God that, that He is going to go fast and He's going to go, it's going to taste great, it's going to look great, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be all that we ever wanted, and it's going to be now. And so we've been asking him to work on our hearts in certain areas and we're tired because we've been asking him for years and he hasn't fixed that in our lives. Or we're exhausted because we've been asking God to work in our children's lives and he doesn't seem to be going at the pace that makes sense to us. They keep doing dumb things and they keep making bad decisions and they keep having arguments with us and so we're, we're exhausted by the fact that God seems to be going much slower than we really want him to go. Or maybe we've been praying that God would, would bring justice in our county and, and the issues seem to be, get, be getting worse, not better. How, how can that be? How, how is God allowing this to happen? We don't like to wait. We don't really like the pace that God works at. But let me, let me let you in on a secret. God loves to take his time. He loves to take his time. God Think about this. God took six days to create the world when he could have done it in an instant. God gave a promise to Adam in the garden that would take millennia to fulfill. God waited 400 years to emancipate Israel from slavery. God walked on this earth for 33 years before he climbed on a cross. God's body laid in the grave for three days before it was resurrected. God loves to take his time. 
He's in no hurry as we rush around and hurry around and try to fix things and make things right and and we're getting impatient and we want to just take it into our hands. God is in no hurry. He plods along in his faithfulness knowing that his plan is coming to bear perfectly. Perfectly. He watches it unfold because he loves to take his time especially with us. Especially with us. And one of the greatest things in your life is to be able to look back over your life and you, you watch as the years pass and as the decades pass and you see God is working in ways that I couldn't see in that moment. I couldn't see it, but by the grace of God, I'm not the person I should be, but I'm sure as heck not that person. Right? I'm not the person I used to be because he's been working in me despite me. He's been working in me when I thought it was all failing. I thought it wasn't working. I thought it wasn't going to happen. And then I look back and I see he was working in all of it. All of it. But it was slower than I wanted. And it was more painful than I wanted. And and it was more confusing than I wanted. But God was working. God hadn't left me. God hadn't abandoned me. He was working in me. And even though I had little patience... He had infinite patience with me. Even though I was out of control, he was in complete control. Because he loves to take his time. It's in taking his time that he he infuses into us his character. He transforms us into who he wants us to be. And so what's the hope for this hurry in our hearts? That's what I want to look at lastly, is this hope of hurry. Samuel goes on to say in verse 13, look at what he says. He says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now, Saul's only been the king for two years. And so Samuel comes to Saul after being the king for only two years and says, I'm sorry, but it's over. It's over. God is taking the kingdom from you. And when you hear that, you might think, well, that seems a little ridiculous. All he did was get in a hurry and do something he shouldn't have done. Well, it actually echoes Adam in the garden. Right? When you think about it, you go all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are given one command, don't eat the fruit. And Adam grabs the fruit and takes a bite, and the whole humanity plunges into sin. And on the, on the surface, it seems like, why would that matter? Why is that such a big deal? Because it represents his rebellion against God. And it's the same thing with Saul. Saul, it seems like, did something very small. He got in a hurry and made a bad decision, but really he was trying to live his life apart from God. He's trying to live his life independent of God. And God says, no, the kingdom is going to be taken from you if that's how you're going to live. And listen, Listen, this, this goes all the way back to Adam because when Adam sinned, God gives Adam a promise. He says this. He says the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. And so God, from the very beginning, when we first fell into sin, he gives this promise to say to us as, as his people, he says, I am going to deal with this problem. I am going to deal with this sin. And it's going to come through one who is a righteous ruler, one who will overcome sin, who will crush the enemy, He will be a righteous ruler who is promised. Evil will one day be overcome by him. And Samuel is telling Saul, it's not you. That's what he's saying to Saul. He's saying, everybody thinks it's going to be you that's going to bring this salvation and you're going to have a kingdom forever. But he's telling Saul, 
it's not you. But then he continues another promise in verse 14. It says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. This is the first concrete allusion we have to David. That this is David who's going to come, and, and God is going to take the kingdom from Saul's house and put it in David's house. right? And it's going to come through David, and he's going to say to David this. He's going to say, I'm going to establish your throne forever. In other words, through you, the one who was promised is going to come. It's not going to be you, David, but through the son of David, I will keep my promise. And so as Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, the true and better David would come. In the fullness of time, he would be born Jesus Christ, the son of David, who would come not a moment too early, not a moment too late. He would come right on time. As Galatians 5 says, or Romans 5 says it this way, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died at the time that we were sinners. He died at the time that we were in need. He died at the time when we couldn't save ourselves. Jesus comes at the perfect right time for his people. Jesus came right on time because God's heart is never in a hurry. This is the wonder of waiting. Think about this. Have you ever thought about what Jesus' second greatest miracle is? His first greatest miracle is his resurrection. But what's, what's his second greatest miracle? It's not turning water into wine. It's not uh, feeding the 5,000. It's not even raising Lazarus from the dead. His second greatest miracle is this. It's that he waited on the cross. It's that he waited on the cross. Jesus is on the cross with his hands nailed to the cross and his feet nailed to the cross. And the crowd is crying out, If you are the Son of God, come down. If you are the Son of God, prove yourself. Save yourself. Work for yourself. Don't wait on the Lord. Do it yourself. And Jesus instead waited. In the face of mockery, Jesus waits and he weeps. He could have saved himself. He could have got off the cross. He could have skipped death and avoided pain. But instead, he did the miraculous for you and me. He stayed. He remained. He abided on the cross for you and me. He waited as the fullness of wrath was poured out on him. He waited as the Father forsook him for our rebellion. He waited as the breath in his body was slowly choked out of him. He waited until he cried out, It is finished. He waited for you and me. That's what Jesus came and did on the cross. Jesus waited for the fullness of the wrath of God to be poured out so that he could bring the fullness of our salvation. It's in Jesus' waiting on the cross that he brings life out of death. This is the scandal of the gospel. It's the foolishness that confounds the wise. It's the miracle that leaves your heart in wonder that God would wait for you to save you, to redeem you. And God says to you, if you'll wait on me, if you'll wait on me, I'll show up. I'll show up right on time right on time but don't hurry if you'll just be still and know that I am God that I am God do you, do you need to be delivered this morning from that addiction of hurry I do I do and I know if you're like me and you're like many of us this morning there, there is such a temptation to be pulled into because there's so much pressure to live a life that is not on pace with God you're out ahead of God, doing your own thing, living your own life, trying to make things happen. 
and it's a life apart from him. And Jesus is calling you back to him to say, here, you, you, can, you can live a different life. You can come to me, and my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There is rest in me, but it's only in him. It's only in him. The one who waited for you on the cross waits for you to come and find rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we wait in your presence this morning. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would transform our hurried hearts, our hearts that are impatient with you, that rebel against you, that want to live at our own pace, a faster pace, a more efficient pace, an urgency that is full of unbelief. Lord, help us to slow down and to see you, to notice you, to trust you in the big things and the small things. Help us, Lord, to not hurry past people either, but to sense the calling that you have on our lives to love not only you, but to love our neighbor. Oh God, help us to be people who are patient, kind, gentle, because we are living in your grace and at your pace. We pray in Christ's name, amen.